Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast. My name is Sarah Ifstecker. My name is Oliver Brady. And in this podcast, we are going to watch medieval set movies. We're going to read medieval set books. And we're going to discuss what the books and the movies got right. We're going to discuss what they got wrong. And what it tells us about a modern audience's impression of what actually went on during the medieval period. Sarah, why did you decide to do this podcast? I decided to do the podcast because I think medieval history is awesome. And in fact, I thought it was so awesome that I decided to get a PhD in medieval history. And my day job is teaching pre-modern history at the university level. That's very impressive, Sarah. Thank you. So I literally have the qualification for talking about medieval history, I think. I'm not sure there are many other qualifications one could have. <sighs> Fine. Whatever. <laughs> And I decided to do it because I like to read and watch books. Read and watch books. I like to read <laughs> books and watch movies about the medieval period. Anything that's got a dude with a sword in it, I'm going to be there and I'm going to enjoy it. And I was also really excited to get a chance to do this because uh, when I am teaching medieval history, I have students constantly coming into the classroom and their ideas about the medieval world are coming from Game of Thrones or First Night or various other medieval and medieval-esque fantasy books and movies. And that is, you know, the assumptions that they come into uh, class with. Before we get into today's movie, in fact, our first movie, what do you think is the biggest misconception people have about the medieval period? I would say the biggest misconception people have is the idea that the Middle Ages is just this period of uh, constant, completely unrestrained violence. And not that yes. there wasn't violence, but it's not like there's not violence today in the modern period. Um, and uh, there was also quite a lot of periods where there was not that much violence, where you know people um, actually lived relatively peacefully. And when there was violence, it was often relatively orderly, I would say, that it's not just chaos, um, that the violence often happens for a reason, and that violence should be contextualized in its specific circumstances. Oh, so what you're saying is that if I was a medieval peasant, I might not have had as bad a time as every single piece of media has ever implied to me that I would have. You're not just being constantly murdered, so no. Okay, thank gods. I just want to get, thank gods, thank god. I only want, there's only one. Um, I only want to um, to get murdered once. I don't want to get murdered multiple times. And as a peasant in a medieval setting, it felt like there was brigands everywhere and church nights and disease and just general wars. Yeah, many medieval peasants, in fact, went their entire lives without being murdered even once. <laughs> I find this hard to believe. <laughs> Sounds like uh, fake news, as we say in our time. Now, Sarah, what was the movie we chose to go for our first our first episode. So today we watched Braveheart, a 1995 movie directed by and starring Mel Gibson. Good. But it might be good to get us out to start, sir, is that I am a God-fearing Christian and you are a Jewish person. I am indeed. Even though we're watching a movie about Mel Gibson and at the end we might decide that this movie is a good movie based on what happens on screen, Mel Gibson is still a huge steaming piece of shit. Yes, I actually spent a lot of time in high school talking about Mel Gibson because I was a junior in high school, I think, when The Passion of the Christ came out. 
And my Jewish high school was really into discussing how anti-Semitic The Passion of the Christ was as a movie, despite the fact that none of us had seen Passion of the Christ, because obviously our Jewish parents would not let us see Passion of the Christ. <laughs> Sorry, just when you mention that movie, it just gets me emotionally. Just I remember where I was when I saw Passion of the Christ, and the answer is nowhere, because I've never seen Passion of the Christ. I still um, have not seen Passion of the Christ, also. <laughs> We should do it for this podcast. Um, we can do it for it Easter. It would be an experience. Yes, we can do it for Easter. It'll be an experience for us all. Um, so, getting that out of the way and the huge steaming piece of shit that Mel Gibson is, the movie is from 1995. It was filmed in, let's just say Scotland for now. Um, and it focuses on the life of William Wallace. And William Wallace was a freedom fighter searching for independence for Scotland, something which they voted against in 2012. But hey, that's what happened. Apparently they didn't watch Braveheart in 2012. <laughs> that should have been on TV every single week from the Scottish Independence Party. That would have been a really smart move. Mm -hmm. uh, what would William Wallace do? And the answer is he'd get betrayed at least three times and never get the gist that this is not a good idea to follow people into places that you don't know. But he would also yell freedom a lot, which I don't think I heard of a lot of people doing at the ballot box uh, when they voted for independence <laughs> in Scotland. So, well, the, the problem is they didn't vote for independence in the ballot. Well, exactly. I mean, a few people did, I suppose. <laughs> that is true. Now, Sarah, what are the or who are the main actors in this movie? So, Apart from Mel, the piece of shit Gibson. Yes. So uh, his uh, wife, Murren, is played by Catherine McCormick, who I have seen in exactly one other movie, Dangerous Beauty, which we will also be covering on this podcast at some point in the future. Dangerous Beauty. That sounds like a, a kind of movie that I might enjoy. I mean, it's all but softcore porn, and it's about a woman who is a fancy prostitute, so... <laughs> Nice. Yeah. Um, let's see. It has uh, Sophie Marceau as his additional love interest. Um, uh, she is a French actress. She has, it looks like, primarily been in French movies, but uh, she was also in Midsummer Night's Dream. And she was a Bond girl in one of the uh, Pierce Brosnan Bond films. This is something that occurred to me when uh, we were watching the movie. Is Sophie Marceau is obviously a beautiful woman. Yes, she is. And it struck me that Leah Seydoux, from a few years ago she was in Spectre is has got a very similar uh, career arc as we're going because she's a beautiful young woman she did mostly French movies she had one breakout role in a French movie that was very successful and then she went straight into being a Bond girl and then I haven't seen her in anything since and that's how I remember Sophie Marceau huh. exceptionally pretty actress very very talented does a James Bond movie then seems to disappear from other Western movies. Apparently James Bond is the kiss of death for French actresses. <laughs> the kiss of death for a lot of actresses, I think. Well, yeah. And for the characters. <laughs> for the characters, that's true. <laughs> uh, so maybe maybe we should check... Oh, we won't mention it now, but we do have a test specifically for medieval movies. Maybe we should come up with one for James Bond movies. I think we might be able to use the same test. <laughs> we could probably <laughs> use the same test. Uh, and then the next actor of any note is Patrick McGoohan, who plays Edward Longshanks. Uh, although, as I'm going to call him, Edward Del Longshanks, because I know it drives my uh, podcasting partner insane. <laughs> Edward Longshanks, 
he's the current king of England and he is a downright nasty dude. Um, and his son is also Edward. Yes, so Edward Longshanks is Edward I, and his son is Edward II, and I actually have no idea who plays Edward II. I looked up the name, I didn't recognize the name, and I didn't recognize anything else he was in. Okay, maybe that's why I didn't write his name down. (laughs) Okay, so maybe we should get into our recap, and we're going to work our way through the movie. Now, there's going to be several segments to the podcast. In the first one, we're going to work our way through everything that happens in the movie. We're not going to go a play-by-play and cover every single scene. We're going to cover the major, most important ones, and we're going to give a little bit of commentary on them as we go along. Now, Sarah's commentary will obviously be much more intelligent and charming and witty than mine, and I'm going to be sitting there going, yeah, he stabbed him in the eyeball! And uh, and hopefully by the time we're finished, you'll get a good idea of what actually happened in the movie if you haven't actually seen Braveheart. My commentary is at least going to be far more pedantic, um, so we will see how that goes. Um, pedantry is always welcome yes Um, and we are going to be calling this section in which we're going to be kind of recapping the movie enumeratio which is a Latin rhetorical term for basically a kind of repetition or recapitulation uh, usually of an argument but in this case it's going to be of a movie and since we this is our first episode we don't have a jingle for enumeratio so I just want you to imagine that the jingle for enumeratio comes now Enumeratio. Sorry. Sarah, set the scene. So we have some beautiful green opening scenery. And uh, while this green opening scenery is before us, a voiceover explains essentially that the King of England, Edward Longshanks, is a dick. um, And that he has conquered Scotland after the death of the Scottish King. The trouble with Scotland is that it's full of Scots. <laughs> um, we then quickly move into uh, basically William Wallace's father and uh, his friends, and many of his friends go to a meeting that's supposed to be with Longshanks, and instead Longshanks had all of them murdered by hanging, uh, which didn't happen, but that's okay. <laughs> it's a very affecting scene. Because um, Mel Gibson is played by uh, a small child with the biggest eyeballs I've ever seen. Um, and they're just wide with one love for his father, um, who tells him, you know, I want you to use your mind before you use your sword. Um, he's like giving him all this good advice and he's telling him to stay away. William Wallace follows him in. And then suddenly you have all of these lords hanging inside a barn and the young Wallace walking around and he's able to see them and there are in fact children being hanged. I think the general gist is that they're getting across the English were very, very, very evil at this point. And also very violent to return to the theme from before about how medieval movies tend to think that we just essentially have constant violence over the course of the Middle Ages. Yes. Um, This is also where we introduce the weird motif that comes up throughout the movie of William Wallace sees dead people. Um, uh, where he has, immediately after seeing these people hanged, he then has a vision of the dead kid opening his eyes and talking to him. This is the first time this happens, and I think it happens three other occasions throughout the movie. I think it might be four. Four. Oh, my God. William Wallace effectively is the ancestor of the creepy kid from The Sixth Sense. Yeah. So, but now he's just a creepy kid with a weird mullet. He does have a weird one. The haircut choices in this movie are exceptional. Um, yeah. They are very bad. But 
After uh, Longshanks has killed all of these Scottish lairds, William Wallace's father and the rest of the remaining men decide that they have to go to war with him. So they go off to their battle and we get a little scene with William and his little friend Fergus, the red-haired ginger kid. I think his name is Hamish. Oh, Hamish. Sorry, where did I see Fergus from? So with Hamish, uh, played by, um, in the future, he's going to be played by Brendan Gleeson. At the minute, he's just played by random red-haired kid. And he has the best twinned pigtailed mullet I have ever seen in my life. I I wish I could grow my hair like this child does. It is amazing. It is a deeply fascinating haircut. So unsurprisingly, going to war does not work out well for William Wallace's father, and he is dead within about the first 10 minutes of the movie. Um, It is Mm -hmm. also at about this point where we see the first woman who lives in Scotland, apparently. Um, It is a miracle how all of these children came to be, since there do not seem to be any women. And this woman, of course... Um, doesn't say anything and her job is to wash off the dead bodies uh, I don't think she, she interacts with any of the men it's just silence the bodies are put on the table and William has to watch as the wounds are being cleaned yes uh, so then we have his father's funeral which uh, I confirmed listening to the Latin this Latin actually sounded more or less right as a good Catholic did they sound like correct Catholic funeral this... rites to you they sounded very much like uh, a Catholic funeral. Many Catholic funerals I've been to in my time. They're not all done in Latin anymore. But when you do get, uh, well, I was going to say a good one, but <laughs> you do get <laughs> one that is done in Latin, that is pretty much what it was. Which we're going to get into later on. Some of the Latin in this movie is, oof. Yeah, the Latin only goes way downhill from here. <laughs> it it very much does go downhill. Um, so we get a little funeral and we get a lovely little touching scene where the only girl child in the entirety of the Highlands runs over and gives him a flower. And, it'll, and it looks, I think it's a violet she hands him. I think it's a thistle it. because isn't a thistle a symbol of Scotland or something? It is a yeah. thistle, it is. It's the symbol of thistle. And she gives him a little purple thistle and, uh, and he kind of looks a little bit strange at it because first of all, it was like, what is this thing that's giving me this thistle? Because he's never seen a girl before. Nope. And also, what are you giving me a flower for, bird? I've never met you before. Never met you before. And then it cuts to the next scene where his uncle Argyle shows up. Argyle not being something I would call somebody's first name. Argyle is definitely not a first name. <laughs> it's a type of sock. Yeah, and I think it's a last name. It's definitely a last name, yeah. And it is another way to describe Scotland. I think it was an ancient name hmm. for Scotland um, at various points, or, or sorry, parts of Scotland. Um, but Argyll shows up and he's played by uh, one of my favourite actors, Brian Cox. And you start saying to yourself, oh, the movie's about to pick up. But Brian Cox is in it for some total of a minute and a half. Yeah, this is a really poor use of Brian Cox. It's a very poor use of Brian Cox. And... He's in it for about two minutes, and he is an almighty prick in this movie. He really is. <laughs> so he starts chatting with uh, with William, tells William he's going to come along with him somewhere. Where are they supposed to be going? Uh, he doesn't say it. Yeah. He just says, you're going to come with me. And so William says, no, I don't want to. And uh, charmingly, Argyle <laughs> says... Uh, you didn't want your dad to die either. <laughs> that happened. <laughs> And um, it's man. just so cutting and cold. It's uh, it's brilliant. I don't want to leave. You didn't want your father to die either, did you? 
Then he, uh, you know, asks William what he thought of the funeral. William's response is, uh, it was in Latin. You don't speak Latin, boy. Yeah. So not a lot of people actually spoke Latin in the Middle Ages. Uh, Latin is the main literary and administrative language. So rich people speak Latin and very well-educated people speak Latin. But if you are, as William Wallace is presented in this movie, and you basically live in the mud, you don't speak Latin. Uh, the real William Wallace was mm -hmm. apparently a member of the kind of lower nobility and probably was relatively well-educated, but he did not live in anything that looks like what we see him living in in the movie. Yeah, that's the, the steps they've taken in the movie to turn William Wallace, who, as you said, was originally an actual member of the lower middle class or lower upper class, I suppose would be a better way to describe it. Um, and they've turned him into an everyman. He was a farmer. He was a crofter. He's living out off the land and he's got cattle and sheep and he lives beside a lake and all this sort of stuff. This guy, this character, wouldn't have any reason to be speaking Latin. Absolutely not. Uh, but Brian Cox, for some reason, assumes he would, despite the fact that Brian Cox is his uncle and knows that his dad doesn't speak Latin and knows that his dad doesn't read or anything like this. But it's another one of those points in the movie where we have a main character talking about using your wits as opposed to using your strength of your arm to win battles, etc., which I think is funny because that all goes out the window by the time William Wallace grows up to be a big Man. That's a good point. He never uses his wits for anything in this entire movie. No, he does not. It's almost funny. <laughs> yeah, that Latin education did not serve him especially well. <laughs> his multiple languages of education. We'll, we'll come to it later on. Um, so, Sarah, we then jump forward in time. Yes, although we do, uh, I just, do just want to quickly add that we do at that point have an additional uh, I see dead people scene where he sees a vision of his dead father. Yes, yeah. we do see a vision of his dead father. And it is... A very funny scene <laughs> where his dead father, his head turns towards the boy and says, you're free to live your own life now, boy. It's like, <laughs> what? Uh, as all, as all nine-year-olds who've seen their dad die want to see is their dead father telling them that they're free to leave the farm now. Yes. So at this point, we cut to an even worse father in the future. Um... Oh. And we also move to London, and uh, we are now at the wedding of a young Prince Ed of Prince Edward, the future Edward II. Um, and as she is referred to in this scene, I believe, the daughter of the King of France. As bride for his son, Longshanks had chosen the daughter of his rival, the King of France. Yes. Now, <clears throat> this is something that you said to me during the movie which is Isabella was a real person and Isabella did this and Isabella did that. And I'm thinking, oh, wow, this Isabella is one of the coolest people I've ever heard about. Isabella doesn't have a name in this movie. She is Milady, you, my queen, <laughs> your majesty, her. Um, the princess of Wales. I, the princess of Wales. I'm almost certain that Longshanks himself refers to as Bint. <laughs> which wasn't a word oh, which would have been used but I think he does <laughs> um, and you're like okay so Isabella is the wife of Edward II but as they're getting married we get one of those lovely scenes which shows up in movies every now and then where you get these 
unguarded looks as Edward is checking out the very handsome young man sitting in the front row. And at this point, we know Edward II is not straight. That is made abundantly clear over the course of this movie. Um, This is also heavily implied in a voiceover, which informs us that if Edward I wanted to have Isabella produce an heir, he would have to do it himself, and that that might be what he has in mind. It was widely whispered that for the princess to conceive, Longshanks would have to do the honors himself. That may have been what he had in mind all along. Which is charming, because as we can discuss later, she was 12 when she married Edward II. Yeah, which is not something. Sophie Marceau is not 12 in this movie. She is not. She's in her mid-20s, but yes, in reality, she was a very, very young child who was getting married at this point. And even apart from that, the great my son's getting married, maybe I can fuck her, is still pretty (laughs) disgusting, even if she is 20. (laughs) That F-bomb just came out of nowhere there. I wasn't <laughs> expecting it. And it sounds so harsh. Uh, we, do, we can swear on this podcast. It's okay. Okay. Edward de Longshanks. Ugh. Sorry, Edward Longshanks is a <laughs> fucker. Um, and then we get back to the Highlands. Oh, no, sorry. We have a scene, sorry, which is... Uh, I know this is a scene which is going to cause furious anger from my co-host, where Longshanks is talking to the heads of his armies, I'm assuming they're the other nobles, and in walks Isabella, as he refers to her as you. Um, Why are you here? Oh, he sent you. If he wants you to live, my son Edward wants you to learn how to rule, then you can go over there. It's it's genuinely annoying that her name doesn't get used. But he, uh, he says that he's going to breed them out. And in order to breed them out, they're going to institute what we all know and love, something that all of us who've ever paid attention to anything in a medieval form would know about. And it's what the movie refers to as Primo Nocta, which I believe means First Night, Sarah, and not the excellent movie starring Richard Gere and Sean Connery, but the concept of allowing an English nobleman to sleep with any new bride on the first night of her wedding. So I have thoughts. Okay. My first thought is very nitpicky, which is that this movie insists multiple times on referring to it as the use prima nocta, and the Latin is actually use prime noctis, and this really bothers me. It also really bothers me that the whole thing doesn't exist. Sorry. (laughs) Stop. We may have to stop this podcast. Are you telling me that one of the few things that I know about the medieval era is that first night was a real thing. Wasn't a real thing. No, it's completely wrong. Um, It is something that is first mentioned in the 16th century and then really kind of took off as a concept in the 18th century, especially in France, as a way in the kind of eve of the French Revolution to talk about the evils of the Ancien Regime. Um, The Middle Ages tended to not be a period where people were especially euphemistic about the fact that they openly just mistreated their peasants just constantly. And, you know, peasants were not being murdered constantly, but no one was being very nice to them either. Um, And as I said, they weren't euphemistic about this. Uh, In Catalonia, for example, they actually even referred to um, a set of customs as the mal's usus, the bad customs, 
Um, and this is the kind of list of, you know, basically, and you actually explicitly, people also said, oh, we have the use mela tractandi, the right of mistreating our peasants or treating them badly. But in fairness, Sarah, if you're going to have peasants and you don't get to mistreat them, what's the point? I mean, exactly. It wouldn't be any fun. So uh, they were not especially quiet about the fact that they really did not treat their peasants very nicely. So if this was a law at any point, it is ludicrous to think that it would not have been on the books in actual medieval legal sources. And it is not. It is first mentioned in the 16th century. And just because I don't think we've mentioned this before, the movie is set in 12... I think it started in 1250. And the Battle of Stirling was 1297. Yeah, so it can have been early as early as twelve fifty. Oh, sorry, no, not twelve fifty. <laughs> sorry, it might have been twelve eighty. I think it was. Yeah, something like um, that. And so the the, the about the Sterling, which is what we're fast coming up on, is in twelve ninety seven. So you're talking three hundred years, maybe. Yeah. Before Prima Nocta, oh, sorry, Primus Noctus. Pre, was, it, okay, uh, so it's Primae Noctis with an I. Sorry. Prime noctis. It's okay. I'm here to learn as much Latin as possible. Enumeratio. <laughs> so. so it literally means right of the first night, whereas the way that they expressed it would mean like right on the first night or right in the first night. Let's say right in the first night, because that sounds more filthy. <laughs> and this is the end of that scene, and we jump straight to Scotland, where William Wallace... With no explanation of where he was, no explanation of what he's done, no explanation of anything whatsoever, is coming back into his village, and it just so happens it's a wedding day. It is. So first we see a weird toxic masculinity rock-throwing contest uh, between him and his old buddy, Hamish, who has now grown up into Brendan Gleeson. And I looked this up as we were doing it because William Wallace looks like a man in his 20s when he shows up. Now, Mel Gibson was obviously not in his 20s, but they've made him look like a man in his mid-20s, and Brendan Gleeson has never looked like a man in his mid-20s. <laughs> Even when he was in his mid-20s, I'm fairly certain he looked like a man in his 60s, because he's Brendan Gleeson, it's just the way he looks. And they are roughly the same age. So oh, like really? The casting movie. Yeah. Yeah, they're 62 and 63, oh. respectively, this year. Yeah, he definitely looks approximately 20 years older than Mel Gibson in the scene. It is very funny to think that they are the same age, but they really are. Huh. That's nice. Um, so they have this, you know, rock throwing contest. Uh, at some point, Mel Gibson wins by throwing a rock and hitting uh, Brendan Gleeson in the eye, which I guess is, you know, how he lost that eye in time to play Mad Eye Moody in Harry Potter. <laughs> he does. He does actually explain a lot of stuff. Um, it'll, it'll probably explain why at the end of the movie he just randomly throws his sword as well. But we'll talk about that when we get there. At this um, event where he you know, manages to hit Brendan Gleeson in the head with a stone and knock him out and not causing concussion um, because, you know, they don't exist in movies. Nope. He also bumps into a girl. And since there's only one girl in the Highlands, Sarah, which girl is it he bumps into? It must be the girl who gave him the thistle. I mean, obviously, because there are no other women in Scotland. She's the only one. And does this lady have a name? Not yet. Eventually she does. Um, her name eventually is revealed to be Murren. Um, Murren. They are sort of making eyes at each other at the wedding. Um, there is a brief interruption to the festivities when some English lords show up and do, in fact, claim the uh, right of the first night. Um, and we're going to play an audio clip of the 
way the English are portrayed at this. Now, not to give away too much, you may be able to tell from my accent, I'm Irish. Uh, not a big fan of the old English most of the time. But they are literally played as pantomime villains in this. And he shows them, he's like, it's my right! to claim the right of Trima Nocta. As lord of these lands, I will bless this marriage by taking the bride into my bed on the first night of her union. Oh, by God, you will not! <laughs> to take the first night and the husband is about to fight and then we get another scene of the fair maiden who has no name choosing to give up her virtue to stop her husband from getting killed and she goes off with the lord to let him enjoy first night privileges yeah, so at this point, we're about half an hour in. I think approximately one line has been spoken by a woman, but we have also had the, I guess, beginnings of a rape scene. So good job on that movie. Good job, movie. Because if there's one thing we know about medieval times, being a peasant was bad, being a woman was worse. Yeah, that is definitely the sense we are getting in this movie. So uh, William Wallace then... Uh, I guess does not really care about this, but goes off and bonds a bit with Marin, um, reveals that he does remember who she was from childhood. Again, who else could she possibly be? Um, she, so they have this awkward flirtation scene in which uh, she says she doesn't know how to read. He says he'll teach her. And then he basically brags about all the languages that he knows. Uh, so he apparently knows both Latin and French once again, the likelihood that anyone in this environment would know Latin or French is approximately zero. The hilarious thing for me in this scene is that if she understood Latin or French, he would be flirting with her. But because she doesn't understand Latin or French, when he speaks it, she doesn't know what's popping up on the screen in our subtitles. So she has no idea. It's just like weird signs to her. But like she's saying something like, oh, what does it mean? And what he said is French is a beautiful language, but it's not as beautiful as you. She doesn't know that. So he could effectively be, yeah. William Wallace, yeah, he's flirting with me. Like that's Yeah, he could, be ask, he could be asking her where the bathroom is. She doesn't know. <laughs> exactly. She has no idea. So it doesn't matter that he's saying these really sweet things. And then at the end, the, the real stinger is when... Um, he says, oh, it's beautiful, but not as beautiful as you. And then she says, what did you just say? And he says, I just said it's an amazing thing or it's a, be- it's a wonderful thing. And they're going, that's... Why not even again, translate if- what you said if you were trying to flirt with what you said? Exactly. Don't, don't translate it as something completely different. But uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm just not as good or as, as fast with the ladies as William Wallace clearly is. Apparently. Um, one of these one of these scenes where he has to come in and just assert his dominance, which is, I'm smarter than you. I've got my own farm. I can teach you to read. I know all these languages. How cool am I? Look at how cool am I? Tell me I'm cool, Catherine McCormick, um, Murren. And it's just, it's meant to be cute. And the two actors sell it well. But looking at it from a modern sensibility, it's like, uh, you're a bit dodgy there. Yeah, it kind of just seems like he's mansplaining language to her. That's exactly what it feels like. He's mansplaining to her. I, I, I was, I did appreciate the fact that he didn't call her sugar tits, though. I mean, that's that's a plus. So you know, for Mel Gibson, this is actually pretty good as far as flirting goes. <laughs> that is pretty good. 
after this brief flirtation and then after another meeting where they just randomly decide to kiss uh, and he takes her for like a, a horse ride in the rain which is the equivalent of driving up in your corvette back in those days and he takes her out for a horse ride and um, and then he tells her he loves her and he says that he wants to get married to her and he gives her i'm not sure if this is the exact right time but he gives her um back a handkerchief which has a thistle in it and we're led to believe that that's the same thistle she gave him at the funeral 20 years before now it looks in remarkably good shape for a thistle he that somebody gave him 20 years ago i think he's lying he just went and picked that like two days before and just kind of dried it off yeah that's not what pressed flowers looked like the color it seemed like was much too vibrant hmm it was very uh, it was very dodgy. I think William Wallace was just playing this girl. He's read the secret and he's working his way through all of the things. I like to think he didn't even actually recognize her. He just uh, kind of really he just really quickly covered up after she said, "How did you recognize me?" He goes, "Oh shit, it was that girl." It's this girl. Uh, the girl. Since there's only one. Um, but they decide to get married and they run off and have a clandestine wedding in the middle of the night. Um, and as we were watching this, Sarah, you said to me that her her father would have hated this and that fathers in this time period would have hated any sort of secret weddings. Yeah, clandestine marriages were actually a huge problem, because, especially if you were a rich father, because you were very worried that your son or your daughter would go off and marry somebody who they weren't supposed to be marrying and that this would then completely ruin whatever marriage alliance you were trying to set up. Um, in the case of fathers, you would uh, of uh, fathers of sons, you would actually perhaps be even more irritated because you'd be hoping to get a really nice dowry out of this from whatever rich woman your your son married, and instead he you know marries some poor woman secretly, and they get shit. Um, uh, so fathers actually kept trying to get the church to declare clandestine marriages illicit, and the church uh, actually did keep insisting on the fact that any marriage in which present tense consent was exchanged or future consent followed by sex um, was still a valid marriage, whether anyone was there to see it or not. And there was, in fact, a priest. There was a priest, which uh, I want to know his story because he is the most hipster-looking priest I've ever seen. And I mean, I haven't seen priests in 2018 that look like this guy. He's got a full-on rocker beard, um... Like that's trimmed. He's got like a tonsil haircut, but it's kind of like got spikes on the edge of it. I mean, this guy looks like he. I was gonna say, we're gonna bring up. He looks like he's a priest who fucks. That's what this guy looks like. He is. He is too cool for this. Um, the other thing about the reasoning behind them having a secret marriage, and when I watched this as a kid, I assumed it was because they didn't want her dad finding out because he has been a little bit disapproving of William Wallace up until this point. But I realized uh, on watching this again last night that they were trying to avoid the prima nocta because they didn't want her to end up going off with the Lord and end up, you know, having sex with him. Yes, prima noctus. <laughs> no, I'm going to I'm going to say it the way the movie says it. It's I, primo nocto. I can't do it. <laughs> Um, but apparently, unfortunately, the English lords have a weird, I don't know, marriage radar or something because they just immediately see Marin wandering around in the village and decide to rape her. This is, these were random soldiers and we see one of them earlier on in the movie. And this is one of the creepiest things I've ever seen because from the first second you see this scene on screen, you know what's going to happen. He's a nasty looking dude. And he starts following her. But the stuff he says to her 
is about as creepy as it possible to go. He steps in front of her, he blocks her, he calls her beautiful, and then he says, You're going, Massey. Well, that looks heavy. Can we help you? You remind me of my daughter back home. You remind me of my daughter back home. Uh, And it's not, it's just wrong. I think I blocked that line out of my memory. It is horrible. And then four of them try to attack her. Mel Gibson shows up to save the day because obviously she needs saving. Um, She goes to run away. He puts her on a horse and sets her out. um, And he manages to escape. She gets caught, right? He apparently doesn't look behind himself at any point in this time to wonder, oh, is my wife still there? No. Shoot. My favorite bit about this is he knocks out a guard and wears his uniform and then walks out of the village and runs off. But the British soldiers are wearing these like really red doublets and nobody thought the question why a British soldier or an English soldier was running into the woods away from where the battle was taking place where the fight was taking place but the important thing is the magistrate comes out and he finds a bit of tartan tucked into her shirt and it's not her own family's tartan so that's how he knows that she got married to Wallace and they just flat out execute her in the middle of the square. She's tied to a stake and he just slowly cuts her throat and then acts like the Scottish people have put an imposition on him. All of you know full well the great pains I've always taken never to be too strict, too rigid with the application of our laws. And as a consequence, have we not learned to live together in relative peace and harmony, huh? And this day's lawlessness is how you repay my leniency. That he had to do this. This is what you get for your leniency. This is how my leniency is repaid. Again, the English are a pantomime villains in this movie. So at this point, we're about 45 minutes into the movie. Every woman who lives in Scotland has been sexually assaulted. And uh, the only named woman in the movie, since as we mentioned before, Isabella is never given a name, is dead. She has been murdered. Yes. yes. So at this point, I would like to introduce a test that uh, we've come up with for medieval movies. Uh, So... Many of our listeners are presumably familiar with the Bechdel test. Uh, So basically there have to be at least two women. Both of them have to have names and they have to have a conversation about anything that isn't a man. Um, So the test I would like to institute, the Ift-Decker test, is that there has to be at least one named woman in the movie who doesn't die. So she has to escape until the end of the movie and manage to get out. And it has to be clear that she survives. Yes, it has to be clear that she survives and she has to clearly have a name. She has to be referred to by name in the movie. And we'll talk about whether or not this movie passes the if-decker test when we get to the end. But I will give you a spoiler alert now. This movie does not pass the Bechdel test. It does not. I mean, I genuinely don't think... Oh, no, there are scenes with two women. They're just talking about William Wallace. They're yes. just talking about William Wallace. <laughs> because, of course, that's what two women would talk about. William Wallace. Yes. And also, only one of them... Ha- oh, actually, technically, neither of them have names in this movie. Neither of them have names. So. <laughs> yeah. Neither of them get named. They're all referred to as Milady or you. Um, so, 
This obviously incites Wallace to come back into town and go on a rampage. He kills the soldiers in that village. And then he and the other men decide to go after the Lord who was involved earlier on. And they sneak into his compound, um, which just from looking at it, seemed like this one thing we should talk about is the set direction. And this is very, very good in this movie. It looks like what I imagine temporary... um, garrison town or garrison uh, would look like back in the day it's got proper uh <clears throat> proper stakes stuck into the ground to represent walls it's got dug out ditches it's got small little cabins inside it really looks like they put in the effort to make it look like something that would have existed at the time yeah and the whole i would say that's done pretty well um yeah. so he kills a bunch of english people <laughs> by sneaking in pretending to be english soldiers yes uh, we once again have a kind of nice demonstration of how the middle ages is violent um by getting to see a lot of uh, uh just very graphic violent scenes as he uh you know chops somebody's leg off at the knee and impales somebody on one of the stakes yeah it was, the battle scenes in this are very visceral and very realistic looking and it it, it you know it's effective it, it makes you feel like you're in the depths of a battle as it's going on um, and at this point we also get to have the husband because I mean men have to have all the agency he gets to come back and kill the uh, English lord who had um, raped his wife on his wedding night yes so that's very nice for him make it click do you remember me stand over the drenny arm it's my right you're right Oh, I'm here to clean the rate of a husband! So... Yeah. Then, Sarah, do we get our first scene with the Scottish nobles? Uh, yes, we do. Where we get to meet Robert the Bruce. Yes, played by Angus McFadden? Fadian? How do you actually pronounce uh, that? Angus... It'd be Angus McFadden. Okay. That's how we'd pronounce okay. it. Okay. Um, handsome, handsome Angus, as I like to call him. Yes, so, yeah, handsome Angus. Uh, he seems to be a big fan of William Wallace. Um, yes, he does. Unlike, he very much looks like he's a big fan. He looks of like he's a big fan. Um, his leprous father is not a big fan. <laughs> it's it, his father, who's still in France, um, according to Robert de Bruce. Um, but it turns out that his father is not in France. He's upstairs because he looks about as bad as any leper I've ever seen represented on a movie or TV before. And he only gets worse over the course of this movie. Um, fun fact, although uh, there is leprosy related to this family, it is actually sexy young Robert the Bruce, who eventually uh, may or may not have contracted leprosy. Apparently, this is an ongoing historical debate. Oh, well, let's just say that he does, and he caught it from his dad, who is disgusting in this movie. But we get the other Scottish nobles, and they want to discuss things with Longshanks, and Wallace comes in and says, there will be no discussion. Uh, he calls him a bunch of cowards. Um, Hamish is there and slams his axe into the table. And he says, we're going after York. You can follow me or you can not follow me. And that's he just basically shows that he's not putting up with what they've been laying down for the last 40 years or 50 years or whatever it is since um, the Scottish king was killed. They're going to try, and uh, I was going to say invade England, but they're going to go into England and give England a bloody nose as it's as, you know as they say to let them know that scotland are not going to just back down and let them have their way anymore yes 
so we then return to the English royal family, who are, of course, not very happy to hear about any of this. Um, and we also get to see some really classic 90s gay panic scenes. Oh, of course. Yeah, so uh, Prince Edward, uh, the future Edward II, as mentioned before, is very much coded as gay, uh, basically by being shown as a coward who likes fashion. Yeah, that's pretty, like, it is the weirdest way to go about doing it. I mean, I understand it's 1995, and I understand that it's a heroic movie, and we're not following this, people. But if you wanted to show that he was gay, and we mentioned Game of Thrones earlier on, just have him be gay. Right. And just flat out have it. I mean, I said, in if you take Renly in Game of Thrones, they don't try and hide it. They just say, yep, here he is with Loris. And that's it done. And instead he has this kind of semi-boyfriend, but you don't actually really see them behaving in a way that is that obviously, you know, demonstrative of the fact that they have a relationship. You just see Edward essentially being effeminate. And anything that happens, he's like, ah! Ah! and he has the squeakiest voice and the... Just the mannerisms of him, as he said, his, when his wife comes in, who, has, of course, has no name, when his wife comes in and stands up to Longshanks uh, in a couple of scenes, like he's shying away in the corner and he's like almost shaking with fear and looking to his you know, boyfriend or just companion. And it's, it's just random. And then there's another scene where they're walking along and after Wallace takes York, which we're going to talk about in a second, um, they're walking along and... Isabella and her handmaiden are talking about the battle. He's in front of them talking about fashion and how to wear the right robes. And it's like, yeah. it's a little bit full on. It doesn't need to be like this. I mean, as I said, if you want to code him as gay or you want to just have him be gay, just have him be gay. Right. Don't dance around it like this. Yeah, that's a very normal choice that they could have made. That is not what they do. Um, it also makes very clear at this point that the dynamic in the royal household is that Edward hates his wife. The feeling is mutual. Um, the same is also true of Edward and his father. Mm-hmm. Um, so Isabella also hates her husband. Um, so we also get to see the beginnings of the, from this point on, basically constant French language snark fest between her and her also completely <laughs> nameless lady in waiting. Um, <laughs> including the line that I feel like would be a really great clip, except for the fact that it is in fact in French. Um, where the lady in waiting tells her, I hope your husband goes to Scotland and meets Wallace, then you'll be a widow. <laughs> That's always the dream. Yeah, since this is essentially treason, and since in the 13th century most of the English nobility spoke French, this was probably not the best idea of conversation to have within earshot of the rest of the court. Good. Now that's <laughs> something that you've mentioned to me before, Sarah. Um, at this time... Obviously, when we're watching the movie, everybody's speaking English because they're English and everybody in Scotland speaking English because they're Scotland and Scottish people speak English. Obviously, if they were in Scotland, uh, peasants would be probably speaking Gaelic maybe around about this time. Yeah. And the noblemen would probably be speaking French and the English nobles would almost definitely be speaking French. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so this is still a period where the kind of main language of the court is still really French um, to the extent that they are also speaking English. Um, it is the kind of very beginnings of what now we have as the English language, which is kind of a combination between Old English, which is Germanic, and Norman French. Um, uh, so 
yeah, so they certainly would have almost all at this point been completely fluent in French and the kind of presentation of her speaking French as being a divide between her and the English court um, is not quite right. And the reason that they would be speaking French is because, as you said, the Normans invaded England and took over the entire country. Yeah. And pretty much all nobles from that point onwards are going to have some sort of Norman uh hereditary in them. Exactly. And when you're talking about the King of England, you know, this is also a point where the King of England still is ruling lands in France and considers those possessions to be, you know, almost as important as England itself. So. Yeah. Well, it's a much prettier place anyway. Um, yeah. And it's <laughs> Southern France. It's really nice. It's gorgeous. It's yeah. Um, so at this point, uh, William Wallace and his Scottish rebels have managed to take York, um, which is, very far into England. Now, this is something that happened. Um, it is very far into England. And then, and I'm still not sure why, I, I think it's explained in the movie, is that they didn't have enough men to hold it, but they retreat back up to the Scottish border. Right. And that is a long way to go back. It is. Um, but so they go back. Uh, Wallace makes an Irish friend. There's one Irish person in this movie. Of course, because Wallace needs help. And he meets Stephen from Ireland. And Stephen's... Let's just say a little bit eccentric. A little bit. Um, he he appears to have the same issue William Wallace has, which is that he talks to dead people, but he's talking to ghosts in the sky. Um, and um, there's a, a lovely scene where Hamish goes, are you talking to God? And Stephen says, an Irishman is forced to talk to God if he wants to speak to an equal. Well, do you converse with the Almighty? In order to find his equal, an Irishman is forced to talk to God. Yes, Father. Um, which, you know, as an Irish person, I, I fully am behind on this. But it involves scenes of other nobles or other Scottish men coming to join. Uh, Stephen is shown to be this kind of crazy dude. He's a bit wild or whatever. But then we have a scene a couple of minutes later where they're out hunting in the woods and another Scottish man tries to attack Wallace and Stephen kills him and says, God sent me to look after you, William. Um, which is his attempt at an Irish accent. Uh, no, I, I, I don't imagine many Irish people actually sound like that. But So uh, this is a, I believe, Scottish person failing to do an Irish accent. How is your Scottish accent? <laughs> it's my Scottish accent. is It's probably as good as William Wallace's in this movie, which is to say it's not particularly good. Um, oh, aye, lassie. Uh, Welcome to Scotland. <laughs> That's a fact. Which sounds like Northern Ireland, because when I try to slip into Scotland, I just I just sound like the Northern. Well, it's definitely no worse than Mel Gibson's, at least. It might be a little bit worse <laughs> than Mel Gibson's, because he, I mean, in fairness to him for being a horrible man, he's a very handsome man. So I think that allows him to get away with his dodgy Scottish accent. Murren. Murren. <laughs> I still see her. So... <laughs> still see her. Oh, God, it's so bad. Um, but this then leads to a battle at Stirling Bridge. Yeah, so the uh, the English show up. They begin by attempting to lure the Scottish nobles uh, into switching sides by offering them estates in Yorkshire at hereditary titles. Uh, this struck me as being much too good to be true in terms of an offer that they would actually make. And based on what I looked up, there does not seem to be any evidence that they made such a generous offer. They seem to have simply just assumed the Scottish probably would surrender because they were vastly outnumbered. Mm -hmm. And the Scottish um, peasants, um, we get a, a lovely conversation between them where they're like, what's going on here? Uh, doesn't look good um, because it looks like the nobles are about to walk and 
the nobles definitely look afraid. Then Wallace shows up, and this is the famous scene we've all seen many, many times, where he comes in with the blue and white face paint, and everyone's got blue on their face, and he shows up, and he walks around, and he gives them a big talk, and the talk finishes with, They cannot take our freedom! Um, and then, for some reason, this gets all of the peasants who want to get in to fight, because apparently the idea of Scottish pride was a real thing back in the 1200s. Yeah, they definitely just had modern nationalism then. Of course, back then, that is the only thing that was going on. Um, and then they all show their ass to the English. and then As you do. William Wallace, as you do. And William Wallace goes over and picks a fight by being very abusive to the uh, English vassal. Uh, and then the battle starts and the cavalry make a charge. And then they bring out their wooden poles and that defeats the cavalry. And then they end up winning the Battle of Stirling Bridge. Yeah, so this is a, you know, was in fact a pretty significant military victory. Uh, so Longshanks is obviously not pleased by this turn of events um, and looks for a way to deal with the situation. So uh, first of all, we do have yet another gay panic episode in which Longshanks then gets so frustrated with his son's essentially mincing effeminacy in this scene that he throws his boyfriend out a window and murders him. Yeah. This, see, the scene is very effective at showing how cold and calculating Longshanks is. But at the same time, it's just so anti-gay that it's hard to find enjoyment in it. Uh, what I'm getting at is, if he had just been somebody who, if this had been a nepotistic appointment, because what happens is Edward II says, he's my war leader now. Right. If he'd have said, if it had been his best friend, completely out of nowhere, just his friend that grew up with or whatever, and then Longshanks throws him out the window for not being particularly good at it or not knowing much about war tactics or whatever, then you'd think, oh yeah, he's cold. But because it's clearly implied that this guy is Edward's lover... It really does look like Longshanks just goes, no, get the gay out and throws him out the window. Right. And then the whole scene also is extremely disturbing because on the one hand, Edward is obviously being displayed as a terrible human being. But I don't think this scene is actually trying to make Edward II that sympathetic either. Um, no. That it seems like as the audience, we are supposed to essentially look down on him for being cowardly and unmasculine. I think that's exactly it. It's like we're supposed to almost admire Longshanks for what he does in this scene, despite the fact it's a terrible, horrible thing. But I think we're meant to admire the fact that he's like, no, my son is going to be a terrible leader, so I'm going to take charge from this point. And it's just it's just not a good scene. It's pretty gross. So uh, we also, this is, I think, the first scene where you start to see Edward dramatically coughing a lot to demonstrate that he is ill um, since he died of, he died of dysentery. And so he wouldn't really be having that much of a cough. But uh... while, while we were watching this, um, I had to look up to see what he died from. And I was like, dysentery, why would that give you a cough? And then I realized it's because it's a movie and they didn't want to just show him sitting on a shitter for 25% of the remaining movie. So it's better for him to have uh, ever-increasing difficulty with breathing and coughing. Not that dysentery would do this to you. Right, so he has a lot of kind of, you know, dramatic coughs at this point. Uh, so then he sends Isabella, his daughter-in-law, um, not that she again is named this, um, <laughs> to go and negotiate with William Wallace. Um, this is definitely not a scene that 
would have happened in real life, but nevertheless, um, it is a scene in which, uh, it is a scene in which Isabella and William Wallace meet for the first time. Uh, so she is very excited about this meeting since one of the other interactions that we've seen her have with her lady-in-waiting is basically kind of fangirling over William Wallace and how, oh, it's so romantic that he fights to avenge a woman who was killed. Um, and she's clearly super into him. Um, this scene once again makes a point of demonstrating that William Wallace knows languages. Um, so Isabella and their co-negotiator are kind of speaking to one another in Latin in order to kind of have him not understand. And he intrudes and says something in Latin. None of them are speaking very good Latin, but... <laughs> the Latin, they, they describe him as a savage. And then William Wallace responds with something along the lines of... Um... Uh, well, I, Sarah, what what does William Wallace say? Because he says, "I am a savage" in Latin, but it's it, it's most definitely not "I am a savage." He says, "Ego non pronunciare mendacium," said "Ego sum homo indomitus." So the homo term indomitus. Yeah, yeah. So both him and the uh, the other Latin speaker use this term. This is not a term that has ever been used at all, and is not how you would use how you would refer to a savage or a barbarian. You would probably use barbaros actually, or siwus. Um, and the other thing is that they also, the grammar in that sentence was a bit off at various points, but I won't uh, do a Latin <laughs> grammar lecture again. And then they're all shocked that this savage would speak Latin. And then he said, prefer vous français? Because he says, would you prefer French? Um, and then she's all like, she is very turned on by the fact that she, that he she's speaks very French. turned on by this. Um, <laughs> because obviously French is the language of love. Now, what I was thinking to myself now at this point was, Wallace can't really speak French to her because she'll understand what he's saying. So he won't get away with his sly flirtation that he'd been doing with Murren back in the day because, you know, he's not going to be able to lie about what's been going on. It must be hard for him. He does, uh, He does, though, however, at some point, you know, talk about his wife a little bit and then says to her, I see her strength in you. Um, I guess this might be because these are the only two women he's ever met. And so he finds them <laughs> yes. similar. That is a very good point. He's like, I see her strength in you. You've uh, drew to what interaction? Like they literally meet. She says something. She talks to the guy in Latin. William Wallace obviously shows that he speaks Latin and speaks French. So therefore, the advantage of having that other guy in the room is gone because they can't have a private conversation anymore. So she sends him away. Wallace is like, I see your strength in her. What? I've never spoken of it. I don't know why I tell you no, except I see her strength in you. Sorry, what strength? There's, there's no strength here. And also, I mean, you know, he knew his wife for approximately a week, as far as I can tell. He's known this woman for mm -hmm. 15 minutes. So yeah. I, he is clearly qualified to make a bunch of really, you know, serious commentary on their personalities. <laughs> I see your strength in her. She also had the appendages at the front that you have that nobody else in this movie has, which is just, it's just weird. Um, also, she's wearing a very spectacular headdress in this scene. And Sarah, I believe this is a, a real thing. Yeah, I actually looked up Isabella's headgear. Um, so there are many different styles of headdresses with which she is depicted, but the particularly striking one, which involves uh, essentially a kind of veil-like thing that goes sort of over a thing on top of her head and then below her chin. 
um, does seem to have been, I believe, a particularly French style and one in which she was depicted in some images. And she apparently brought as part of her trousseau, the kind of set of clothing and uh, items that she brought with her into her marriage, 72 different headdresses. So she had a lot of that options is, to choose from. That are a lot of options. And as we were joking about, she probably used one depending on what she was doing. I'm sitting on a chair. I have to wear a different headdress. Oh, I'm at the desk now. I have to wear a different headdress. Um, one thing that did strike me with this is if she was somebody who had like 72 different headdresses and a hundred different dresses, surely herself and her husband would have really got on. According to this movie, yeah, they really should have bonded over fashion and uh, it's really too bad that they didn't. It is a very shame. So at this point, uh, Wallace believes her, believes that Longshanks wants to talk about peace um, and he starts to move uh, and uh, kind of shy away from war. But when she gets back, it turns out that Longshanks had been planning to betray all along and they go to the battle of, um, I'm not sure where this battle takes place, uh, but they go to have a second battle um, because Longshanks has called in Irish replacements, he's called in French replacements and he's called up all of his southern armies and they're all going to go and take on the Scottish at this battle. Right. So Isabella is very upset to hear this because she, you know, you know, she also feels that she was sent into these negotiations under false pretenses. So she then sends her lady in waiting with a note to inform Wallace of these developments. Um, at this point, they have literally committed treason. And do they do this on the sly, sir? No, she goes, she shows up with guards. I don't know who these guards are and why they are not concerned that the queen's lady in waiting is given no, is giving notes to the person with whom, uh, or to the military leader about to fight a battle against the King of England. These guys are just standing in the background, completely and utterly at their own ease. Just quiet and, and stoic while she commits treason. And it is very clearly and obviously treason that's going on because she hands across the note. Wallace opens it and reads it in the open air in front of everybody. And he's like, is this true? <laughs> It's like, what are you doing? Like, surely, and then he runs off to go and, like, get battle prepared, right? But then the battle takes place, and in it we have Wallace and Stephen, the Irish lads, like, don't worry about the Irish, they're going to come with me. So uh, Longshanks, again, showing how much of an asshole he is because he's English, says, just send in the Irish to weaken them. It doesn't matter if we lose them all, blah, 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 blah. It's like World War One. The archers are ready, sire. Not the archers. My Scots tell me their archers are miles away and no threat to us. Arrows cost money. Use up the Irish. The dead cost nothing. It's like World War One. Just fire them in and like just let them get cut down as cannon fodder. Um, but they run at each other and then they stop and they all hug and the Irish join the Scottish because, I mean, why wouldn't you? You get a chance to kill the English, which is what all of us are looking for at any given point. So they join in. And then at that point, it becomes an even battlefield because you have the Scottish nobles and their retainers, you have the Highland men, and you've got the Irish against the French reinforcements and the English armies. And at this point, based on the ferocity of the Scottish, you would think that there's a good chance that they will actually win this battle. And when the main battle starts to take place, they're holding their own, and Wallace calls for the sting attack, which is the nobles coming in around and flanking them. And unfortunately, what do the nobles do, Sarah? They take off. And they run away. They just walk off the battlefield with their soldiers. And it's revealed later on that they took a deal behind the scenes from Longshanks to 
take hereditary titles in Yorkshire or wherever it happened to be in England. And uh, Wallace ends up getting taken down by a single knight. Um, As they have a fight, he's about to kill him, but it turns out that it is his old friend and handsome, handsome Angus McFadden. It's Robert the Bruce. Yeah, so sexy Robert the Bruce is the only one of the nobles who does seem very upset about this whole thing. Um, And it's pretty much at this point going around talking to various other members of the Scottish nobility, including his father, about how upset he is. Um, he literally, when speaking to his father, yells, it's tearing me apart because he, I guess, is in the room now. <laughs> it's very funny. It's like, father, it's tearing me apart. Um, and we're going to play it. It is a beautiful, beautiful scene. It is. They fought for William Wallace and he fights for something that I've never had. And I took it from him when I betrayed him and I saw it in his face on the battlefield and it's tearing me apart. He also, uh, so one of the two kind of ringleaders of the nobles who was involved in this betrayal uh, is Wallace has him killed. Um, uh, He seems to think this is kind of funny and in a slightly unhinged way is just sort of sitting at a table and saying, there's no telling who will be next. Maybe you, maybe yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> he has clearly lost the rule of himself. But uh, Wallace kills that guy in the scene, if you've ever seen the trailer for Braveheart, where he rides a horse into the guy's bedroom <laughs> in the middle of the night because he manages to get him through the entire castle. Uh, castles didn't have really big, wide staircases back in those times. If you've ever been to a medieval castle, you ain't riding a horse up the stairs in a medieval castle. But he rides in, gets in the bedroom, kills the dude, and then jumps out the very convenient double doors the dude has in his bedroom. Yeah, that whole building actually does not look like it would physically support a horse because it's made of like wooden slats, but... And he jumps out and the horse goes into the water and William Wallace is into the water and they escape. And then we have this scene where the other Scottish lords are like, oh, he could kill any of us. And uh, Robert Bruce is laughing and then suddenly to see blood dripping down from above and he's killed another one of the Scottish lords. Easy come, easy go. at that point... Easy come, easy go, because I mean, they're all pieces of shit anyway. So um, Robert de Bruce convinces Wallace to talk to the Scottish Lords, and they say, yeah, actually, we're on your side. We want to fight with you now, because they've gone around and they've been doing guerrilla tactics and killing lots of British, and sorry, I keep saying British, killing lots of English in the background, and it looks like they're going to make another mounted or proper offence against the English, and the Scottish Lord say, yeah, we want to join into you. And William Wallace, because, you know, as his dad told him, you got to use your brain uh, first, just completely believes them, despite the fact that they have already shown that they are terrible, terrible liars. He's a pretty brainy guy. He's very, very smart. Um, he does get another warning from Isabella about a possible betrayal at this point, um, where they meet in a barn. And this is also the point i believe where i think logic kind of falls down because the future queen of england is just wandering around in the scottish highlands to meet uh freedom fighters and just effectively bone down with them yeah uh women especially women who are married to the crown prince of england are pretty well supervised the supervision is obviously not perfect but it's good enough that you don't get to wander around as a member of the royal family in a war zone and sleep with William Wallace. 
so that is somewhat ridiculous. Um, but yes, and also, of course, so they're not noticing, A, that she's having this affair, that she is just wandering around in the middle of nowhere, and that she is just full-blown committing treason at this point. It is incredibly bizarre that she's able to get away with these things. But Wallace believes the Scottish nobles and he goes towards a meeting, Longshanks, where they're going to talk about peace. But it turns out that they're not talking about peace. And what happens, Sarah? So William Wallace is betrayed to the English by, it turns out, Robert the Bruce's leprous father. And the leprous father says, oh, I did it for the greater good. And it is, it, he pretty much says he does it for the greater good, which is that Wallace will be removed and that one of their own, i.e. Robert the Bruce, will become king instead of having this, as he's portrayed in the movie, a peasant becoming some sort of leader. So Robert, the, Robert Bruce the Bruce basically says, be, I hate you, dad. Yeah, I hate you, dad. But at the same time, he doesn't shy away from accepting the possible crime. Right. And then this leads to Wallace getting taken down to meet Longshanks. And Longshanks basically tells him, you're dead, boy Oh, Yes, so he is uh, brought before a tribunal. He uh, is sentenced to death uh, to be executed, since obviously he does not confess and repent. Um, the scene is a little bizarre because the magistrate is kind of dressed up like he's in the Inquisition and is kind of talking like it too, but... Yeah, he looks like he's in the Inquisition and he describes it as you will go for purification. Is that something that they would describe? No, I mean, especially, no, I mean, not when you're talking about a secular crime and being executed by the state. Um, uh, he's just being executed because he committed treason, according to English law. Um, so mm -hmm. they would not use this purification by pain language. They would be very un-euphemistic and inform him that he is about to be hanged, drawn, and quartered, which in fact he then is. Yeah, but before that, we get his last night in the cells and the future queen, Isabella, again. In this case, she's not even trying to hide it. She just walks down and tells some guards to get out of her way. Basically, she says, Longshanks is going to be dead in a month. Uh, his son is a, I'm not, I can't remember, he's a weakling. Um, who do you think is going to be running the country, implying that she's going to be running the country? And the guards are like, okay, yeah, fair enough. And they let her in. Johannes. I will see the prisoner. We've got orders from the king that nobody... The king will be dead in a month and his son is a weakling. Who do you think will rule this kingdom? Now open this door. Majesty. She comes in, she talks to Wallace. They obviously love each other. He can't use her name because I'm not sure if he's bothered to learn it. There is zero evidence um, that he knows her name. There is zero evidence he knows his name or her name. Uh, and she gives him out a draft of... Um, I'm assuming something Gaius made for him. Um, <laughs> but he gives her a draft of a pain medicine and she drinks, or he, uh, first of all, he toxic mans all over this. He's like, no, I'm going to take the pain. And she's like, no, please, for me, like, do something to the pain. They're going to kill you anyway. I can't do anything to stop them killing you if you don't repent. Please do at least take this to dull the pain. He's like, no, no, I'm, I'm not going to do this. As I'm a man. There's something wrong. I'm a man. I'll take whatever they can give me. But she gives him the draft. He eventually does drink it. They kiss, despite the fact that the door to the cell is still open. And there are guards directly outside. But they do anyway. Then she sneaks off and she goes, or she sneaks off. She leaves and she goes up. And this is my favorite scene in the movie. Oh, wait, but before she he shows spits up, out the pain medication in oh, he a does. Sorry, stunning yes. display of toxic masculinity. 
Sorry, I forgot all about that. I waited till she leaves and then he's just like, and he spits out. You're like, come on, William Wallace. What are you doing? Such a jerk. He's a jerk. Um, She effectively put herself in possible debt territory to come down and give that to you. And you just spit it out because you're too much of a man. Yep. Um, But at least they got to make out one last time. They did get to make out one last time. And I bet it was the best make out she ever had because, you know, his mouth was numb at that point. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but the uh, she goes up and I said this is my favourite scene in the movie where Longshanks is basically dead he's lost the ability to speak Edward II is there and she comes up and says I want come to beg for mercy and then Edward II goes oh you've really been quite taken with him haven't you and it's a very fat way and it's an offended way and it's like I have come to beg for the life of William Wallace. You're quite taken with him, aren't you? You don't need to make him out to be this much of a jerk or this much of a weak You could just have him say, no, that's a terrible idea. Because, to be honest, it probably was. (laughs) It probably was a terrible idea. Uh, But he says that Longshanks can't speak anymore. But the last thing he did say was that he's happy that Wallace is going to be dead before him. So Isabella goes up and uh, Sarah, if you can explain that. Yes. So, awesome, uh, badass shit she does so at this point. So she goes and sidles up behind him and then whispers in his ear, your line dies with you and tells him that his son will not sit long on the throne and that she is now pregnant with Wallace's child. So the future King Edward III is in fact, according to this movie, the son of William Wallace, not of Edward II. Um, awesome. so this, I found, and she yeah. whispers this in his ear and he's not able to respond and it's just like fuck you Long it's Shanks. actually a really good performance on the part of Patrick McGowan because he manages to demonstrate his just complete sheer hatred and anger while also being completely immobile yeah it's a it's really very good, good scene and she's she's very affecting it anyway because you can tell that she's there's genuine malice behind her words too she knows that this is hurting this man yeah it's actually a great scene and then we get the next morning where he prays to God to because he's scared. If only he had some sort of medicine which would stop him from feeling pain at this point. Um, but they bring him out and the magistrate is there again, dressed like somebody in the Inquisition. And uh, as Sarah said, they hung, draw and quarter him. So they hang him. They stretch him using uh, horses. Um, and then they... Yeah, so in this they didn't actually use the horses. Um, So the quartered part could be either with horses or not. They also in this scene kind of just added him being stretched on the rack, which isn't part of the punishment, but no reason not to add a just extra racking scene because in the Middle Ages they were very violent, obviously. So, Mm -hmm, Of course. Um, And then they they lay him down on a plinth and they put him out into Jesus pose, above Jesus pose, and they publicly cut him open and start taking his entrails out. They do indeed. Uh, While his entrails are being ripped from his body, he has a vision of his dead wife. And then we also Mm -hmm. get to see his living girlfriend crying a single tear in a very attractive way. It's a, it's a very beautiful scene. I like, it's hard not to look at a, a very beautiful woman and see her cry and not be affected by it. But like, 
we were both laughing at it at the time because it is just this perfect single tear rolling down the perfect cheek of this beautiful French lady who is not looking at the thing. She just knows it's happening. Yeah. Um, and the crowd yeah. at this point start being for mercy. Uh, he has asked if he wants to speak a single word with the assumption being that he will, you know, beg for mercy and then uh, will be executed. The execution will be finished in a quicker and less painful manner. Um, mm-hmm. He instead yelled. Do you want you should you should do the yell? He builds it up and he's like, and the magistrate's like, OK. And he's like, I'm going. And clearly you're thinking he's, he has to be repenting or saying mercy or whatever. And he just comes out with freedom. And then it cuts to like everybody else in the crowd, like being super affected by how he manfully. All of these English people who are apparently in no way, you know, not into this guy who is apparently a Scottish nationalist before his time. And even his friends who are somehow managed to be in the crowd. Um, so Hamish is there and uh, Stephen, the Irish lad. And they're all like, oh, no, William. <laughs> <laughs> they, they really do. Like, it's it's a it's a definite. It's like, oh, Jesus. William. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he shouts a lot. And then we cut to seven years yeah. later. And it's they're set up. And it's the English on one side, the Scottish on another. And again, the Scottish nobles want to go wimpy on it. Uh, Robert de Bruce is representing the Scottish king and he steps out and there's a lovely scene where he just turns around and he's like, nah, let's fight them. Let's get our freedom. You bled with Wallace and I bleed with me. And the other nobles are all standing there just going, oh no, <laughs> not this shit again. But he gives a big speech. It doesn't get the same response as Wallace does because Wallace is obviously the most charismatic man in the history. So Hamish steps forward in the scene that I mentioned earlier and just randomly throws his sword. I have no idea what it's meant to do. No idea. I also feel like it would be much more useful if either he or somebody else held on to the sword. Yeah, you're about to go into a battle. Don't throw away your great big sword, Hamish. But when he does, all of the scholars are like, yeah, and then... We cut to them running towards each other and then freeze frame. The Battle of Bannockburn, the Scottish did actually defeat the English. Yes, and yeah, the voiceover explains that Scotland then won their freedom. Yes, of course. And as we all know, it worked out so well for them in the long term. They were totally free for the rest of their history. They they had a couple hundred good years at least. (laughs) And that's the end of uh, Braveheart. Yeah. Um, Good. So at this point, should we move on to discussing... uh, what they got right and what they got wrong. We're going to see what happened in the movie that they managed to accurately portray and we're going to look at what they managed to get completely and utterly wrong. So we're going to talk about what they got wrong and what they got right. We're going to start with what they got right. So Sarah, well, first of all, do we have a cool Latin name for this? Yes, so this section is entitled Vera et Falso, which means essentially true or false or or correct or incorrect. Vera we, et falso. Vera et or vera, depending on which uh, form of Latin you want to use, et falso. So, vera et falso. Yes. Vera et falso. <laughs> this, we, will, we will get jingles at some point, because I can't keep doing that. Um, so, vera et falso. What did they get 
right in this movie, Sarah. So I'd say one of the top things they got right is that Edward the First is, in fact, a huge dick. Um, <laughs> Edward the First has the dubious honor of being someone that uh, a number of different groups of people deeply hated. Um, he is, in fact, known for his rather brutal repression of Scotland. Uh, his nickname, which bizarrely never gets used in this movie, in addition to Longshanks, is Malleus Scotorum, meaning Hammer of the Scots. Uh, that seems nice. like it would have been a relevant one to bring up here. Um, he is also known for brutally subjugating Wales uh, and for expelling the Jews from England. So nobody likes Edward I. You had mentioned this before, that... Um... There was a massacre at York. So that was a hundred years before. Uh, before so that was yeah. in. So that wasn't. No. Longshanks. So that was in 1190. Um, but in 1290, Edward the First essentially more or less seems to have decided that uh, he'd gotten all of the money that he could get out of the Jews in England. He uh, kept taxing them pretty heavily, and uh, you know, kind of forcing them to lend him money. And at this point, the Jewish community increasingly doesn't have that much money because they're making these loans that aren't being paid back and they're being kind of taxed out of existence. And he finally decides it would be best to just kick them out. Oh, good. Good job, Edward. Nice guy. Mm. Really sweet guy. <laughs> <laughs> so Edward is a dick. What else did the movie get right? So uh, the next kind of big thing that I wanted to mention that's, I guess, somewhat in between in terms of stuff they got right, stuff they got wrong, um, is the character of his son, Edward II. Um, so Edward II was in fact reputed to be gay. Um, he had very close relationships with a couple of uh, male favorites and uh, you know, gave them more authority than might necessarily have been a wise decision. And according to some rumors, at least, that these relationships might have been sexual relationships. Um, and... This even goes so far as uh, he, after his death, uh, chronicles from the 14th century even claimed that the way in which he was killed is that a red-hot poker was shoved up his ass. So uh, that is probably apocryphal, but the fact that that was the rumor is probably supposed to be a particularly unkind reference to the general uh, belief that he was probably gay. Yeah, so they probably see that as like a oh, it's um, what it's a poetic uh, ending to him, to exactly. be skewered by a red hot poke. Exactly. So, does not say anything particularly good about medieval attitudes toward homosexuality, but uh, no, definitely yes. not. Yes. Um, so you know, I mean, he seems to have slept around with women as well. Uh, we know that he had illegitimate children by mistresses, uh, as well as four children with his wife. Um, uh, but it is very possible that he had affairs with men as well. That leads us to what they got wrong. So the entire character of Isabella is kind of a disaster. There's a character named Isabella in this movie. I mean, no. I guess I mean the entire character of the nameless princess of France. <laughs> oh, the pretty girl with the single tear. Yes, the pretty French girl. Uh, so we've already talked about the problems with, uh, you know, English royal women wandering around the countryside unsupervised. Uh, but the other problem is that the real Isabella was, in fact, 10 years old when William Wallace died in 1305 and did not marry Edward II or arrive in England until 1308, a year after Wallace's death. Wow. Uh, so this affair would not have been possible in addition to being improbable. So, Sarah... Um, this is another thing we're going to do is we're going to pick one person from the movie or one event from whatever movie we watch and we're going to actually look at the historical 
truth behind this person. Now, obviously, we have a bunch of really strong characters in this. We have Wallace himself. We got Robert de Bruce, the future poet king of Scotland. We have Edward Longshanks, the Hammer of the Scots. Uh, we've got Edward II, the Hammer of the random dude that uh, he happened to be banging at that particular time. Mm. But I think of all of the people who are watching, the most interesting one would be Isabella. So what can you tell us about Isabella and what actually happened with her during her lifetime? And yeah. what do we call this segment? Historia et Veritas. So history and truth. Historia et Veritas. <laughs> Got to we're we're getting there on the jingles. <laughs> Uh, so the real Isabella, uh, I think, is actually kind of awesome. Um, so she was known for being quite intelligent. She actually was very well educated um, and was a pretty good diplomat as far as things go. She seems to have been pretty good at manipulating the various factions of the English court, um, even managing to pretty successfully form an alliance with the first of her husband's favorites, Piers Gaveston. Um, as well as developing other independent relationships and alliances at court. Uh, she regularly attended council meetings and uh, also managed in, uh, in this time to amass a decent amount of properties. So she was actually pretty independently wealthy as well. Hmm. Um, so she is uh, at the English court. Um, at this point, for much of her husband's lifetime, they actually seem to have gotten along relatively well. They have about four children together. They seem to have generally been on the same side when Edward was in conflict with his barons. But uh, she starts to run into problems because she does not get along well at all with the next of Edward's favorites, a man named Hugh Desponce. Um, so Hugh and Edward are becoming increasingly unpopular with the English barons. And Isabella, for a long time, is on the same side as Edward and Hugh, but the tensions between her and Hugh uh, make that increasingly a difficult relationship. Um, things seem to have gotten even more tense after, basically, it seems like probably by accident, Edward and Hugh kind of managed to abandon her behind enemy lines. Um, so they're fighting. <laughs> Accidentally. <laughs> So they're fighting with Scotland again, and they seem to have kind of ditched her, and she barely managed to get back safely, and two of her ladies-in-waiting actually got killed in the process of her trying to do this, because she was trying to get past, like, the, there was, they brought in all these, like, Flemish naval forces who were allied with Scotland. Um, so uh, she seems to have been increasingly not pleased. Uh, she was also asked to swear loyalty to the Desponce family and refused to do so. Um, and at that point, basically, so, wait. Yeah. So she, as Queen of England, yeah. married Edward, was then asked to swear fealty or loyalty to a lower house? Yeah, was asked to kind of take an oath uh, of loyalty to... So not an oath of vassalage that, exactly, but a kind of loyalty oath. That seems so bizarre. Yeah. So she was obviously not up for doing this. I mean, you know, she's the sister no, yeah. of the king she's of the France. Queen. And she's the queen and she's the sister of the king of France. I mean, yeah. this is this is a fancy lady. So she's not up for doing this. And at this point, she basically ditches and runs off to France, where she becomes the focal point of a brewing English rebellion against Edward, since Edward reigns not especially popular with the barons. Her brother, the king of France, is also not happy with Edward for various reasons. 
Um, and at this point, she also uh, begins an affair with a man named Roger Mortimer, who is a uh, an English lord kind of based in the marches around Wales. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so she then basically promises, um, or so she then, you know, has her son with her, her oldest son, Edward, who at this point is about 13. Um, she's able to get her brother to officially ally with her by promising that her brother will, you know, give him a couple of kind of little symbolic concession or that Edward will give him a couple of little symbolic concessions. Um, she also marries him off to a fancy Flemish noblewoman and gets a nice dowry and can, you know, make a new alliance and can hire some mercenaries. And she and Mortimer then go to war and, uh, take over England. Um, awesome. Yeah. So they, in fact, conquer England. They execute Hugh um, and imprison Edward, who probably died about a year after that, um, either just due to ill health and kind of poor conditions during his captivity um, or very possibly because they had him murdered Um, since he was the king. I mean, that probably would have been a good call, honestly. And Edward III is is king at this point, and he is implied in the movie to be William Wallace's son, but there's no actual evidence that he was William Wallace's son. Since he was born seven years after William Wallace died, it would have been very difficult for him to have been William Wallace's son. Very, very long gestation. Yeah, she was, uh, in which she was pregnant from age 10 to 17. (laughs) 10 to 17, because she was like, I can't, I can't have a baby before the legal age of consent. So I have to, I'll have to hold him in here for seven years. Um, yeah, so Edward III is technically king, but uh, Isabella and her lover Roger are uh, basically ruling as co-regents. Um, mm-hmm. uh, once Edward gets a bit older, once he gets to his about late teens, um, he wants to actually rule himself. At this point also, um, Roger in particular is becoming somewhat less popular. So Edward has Roger executed. Um, he essentially presents his mother as a victim, which she almost certainly was not. Um, uh, she's kind of semi under house arrest for a bit, um, but does eventually, uh, start kind of traveling around again, visiting her various lands in England and even becomes involved in some negotiations with France, uh, since of course she is still related to the French Royal family, uh, in her later life. So, and she's somebody who then gets, especially in later literature, villainized, uh, her nickname that kind of caught on is the she-wolf of France. <laughs> Um, and I think that, you know, she's really somebody who, you know, if a man had, you know, had a coup and, you know, removed a ruler who was seen as being not effective or that they had issues with, he would probably be much Mm -hmm. less demonized than she in fact became in later sources. And I think she's pretty awesome. Yeah, this is very interesting. It's, it's funny when you're reading through her story like that sounds like something that could be turned into an epic movie and we get the story of William Wallace because he happens to be a male hero uh, fighting for Scottish independence she seems to have done everything that Wallace was planning to do and she did it from the inside and without getting hung drawn and quartered yeah and she actually is also the person who uh, you know one of the things that she accomplished was kind of helping to resolve uh, tensions with Scotland and calm things down a little bit Hmm. because she'd already had a little bit of Scotland in her, so she wanted to to repay the favour. One thing I've always interested about this, so at this point, the King of France is her brother. Yes. And is Edward III's nephew. So Edward Edward III's uncle. Uncle, sorry, yes. Uncle, nephew, that's what I meant, is his nephew. Yeah. So when 
Edward III ascends to the throne. Was there any sort of familial um, connection between them in in almost like a, a friendship way? Or at this point, nations didn't really matter, that they were just out to look after themselves, and that even though they were related to each other, that all alliances were just kind of temporary, even if you did have a brother or a sister or an uncle, etc., in in charge in another region. Yeah, so I would say the idea behind alliances in the Middle Ages is that you have that kind of family connection and that's going to help contribute to peace. In reality, I would say the issue is that those connections have to be very consciously maintained and kind of activated in certain ways. So sometimes it works out well and sometimes it doesn't. Um, So in this case, I would say you know, Edward had something of a decent relationship, it looks like, with his uncle and, you know, had lived at his court for a number of years when he was younger. And that mm-hmm. actually seems to have been an okay relationship. He doesn't necessarily have that close of a connection with other members of the French nobility. And actually, the beginning of the Hundred Years' War is Edward III claiming a, um, that he has the right to the French throne through his mother um, after his uncle and I think a couple of other French people die. Good. Now, Edward III uh, seems like the kind of guy who might hide his identity in order to take part in jousting tournaments. He didn't, but his son did. Maybe. Oh, maybe, maybe. Maybe we'll find that out in a later movie. We might. (laughs) All right. That's very interesting. I said it's about the same thing. Now we're going to move on to our next section, which is where... Myself and Sarah are going to try and come up with alternative versions of the movie Braveheart based on just the name and the setting. So in this thing, uh, we're bound to have a cool Latin name for it that I don't know, but I'm going to try and sing in a second. So Sarah, what's the name of this section? So this is Fabula Nostras, or Our Story. Oh. Fabula Nostra. <laughs> <laughs> we're getting there. I think this is working. At some stage, I'm going to hit a note, um, <laughs> if I keep trying. So, Fabula Nostra. Sarah, if you had to make a movie based in the medieval setting and it was named Braveheart, what movie would you make? So, inspired by this, mov- by, uh, this movie and the characters it has in it, I want to make a movie about Isabella of France. I think she's awesome. Oh, I wish I'd have gone first. <laughs> I think she's awesome. I think that she, in fact, displayed a great deal of courage during her own lifetime and uh, fought to, uh, you know, have England ruled more, uh, be ruled more effectively than it was being ruled. And I think somebody should make a movie about her because she is much cooler in real life than she is in this movie. And what would you imagine this to be? Like a, a proper uh, biopic or biopic or... Would you have it have fantastical elements or randomly made up stuff like uh, the actual Braveheart movie? I would be up for just having this basically being accurate. Um, I think that her story on its own is interesting enough that you don't need too much embellishment. Uh, you even actually have a decent amount of sex, you know, without making things up like her having an affair with William Wallace. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, the relationship between her and Edward, between her and Mortimer, between her and her son would make for a really interesting movie. Um, I do actually like Sophie Marceau a lot. Maybe she wants to reprise her role. That's what I was about to say. So who would you cast as Isabella? Yeah. Sophie Marceau. Yeah. Or maybe Leah Seydoux, uh, since uh, she's had a rough time post being in a Bond movie. 
in a Bond movie. Yeah. Well, I'm not even certain if she has a post a bad time. I just haven't seen her in anything. Maybe I need to watch more movies with French people in. Jesus. Cheese eating surrender monkeys. But anyway, um, so as ever, uh, and this will probably happen every single week, you come up with a really good idea with a movie, and then I'm going to try and come up with one that's called Braveheart. And I'm, <laughs> at some point, I'm going to definitely make sure that I go first so that I get the good ideas out of the way. <clears throat> if I was to make a movie called Braveheart and set in the medieval period, I would make a fantastical tale, Sarah. So what I envisage happening is it's going to start with a young man. And the young man falls afoul of evil magic. And we can tell that it's evil magic because the person who is doing the magic is a woman and she's wearing black. And as we all know, that means that she's a witch and she's evil, right? So she's going to bewitch him so that his heart doesn't beat properly. So he's got an erratic heartbeat. Now, in the modern day, this is an easy fix. We just put in a pacemaker. But back in medieval times, they wouldn't have had pacemakers. So he's going to spend his life not being able to be fit and healthy. So he's a sickly child. So he spends his time learning Latin and French and as many languages as he possibly can in order to better himself mentally before he has to better himself physically. So I'm still mirroring the William Wallace story, except that he's not going to be the world's greatest warrior when he actually shows up. He's going to be more of a poet. And I'm going to get him to write poetry, which will inspire the peasants of Scotland to war against the British and he's going to be known as Braveheart. I hope the poetry won't be in Latin or they'll have a hard time understanding it. He will also learn Gaelic. <laughs> um, because once you've learned French and Latin, Gaelic just follows next. Actually, strangely enough, French and Latin would be a really great introduction to learning Irish. But um, if he's learning Gaelic, uh, and he's going to inspire them using his poetry, and he's going to become known as the Braveheart. The man whose own heart doesn't work properly, but he inspires a fight for justice in other men that they will actually try to overthrow their English overlords. And that's why I'm going to call it Braveheart. Who would star in this movie? He needs to be a sickly looking child. So that means I'm going to cast Eddie Redmayne. It's not a movie I'm going to watch. Wait, no, I'm going to go outside the box. Forget about my Eddie Redmayne hate. I'm going to cast Michael Sarah. Oh, interesting. I can see him playing a sickly Scottish noble with a tiny little pencil mustache and nobody likes him, but he's really good at writing. Now I'm kind of liking the idea of him also having like weirdly sort of like, I don't know, chin length hair and that being a really awkward yes. look for him. And I'm kind Perfect. of entertained by it. And we can have him have an affair with Isabella, who in my movie will be played by... Zoe Kazan. I think his heart's going to give just right out. Uh, yeah, he's going to have a heart attack. Like, the first time she kisses him, it's just going to go... There he goes. Well, those are our two versions of uh, Braveheart. One of them, which sounds like an actual epic, awesome movie that we were watching, <laughs> and the other one's got Michael Sarah in it having a heart attack because he gets a, late, or he gets a boner about a lady. Which leads us into our final section, where we're going to give ratings on the actual movie, 
Um, now, again, must iterate that despite the fact that Mel Gibson is an absolute shit, we're just going to rate the movie. Uh, yeah, Mel Gibson's a dickhead. He's a, he's a regular Edward Longshanks. Yes, he is. Sarah, how would you rate Braveheart as a movie? So I would give Braveheart a three. I think it is a very enjoyable movie, but my rating is going to be knocked down a bit by some historical points. Um, in particular, I think that uh, the kind of way in which the character of Isabella, as well as the character of Edward, is dealt with are uh, both inaccurate and problematic in various ways. Um, and I am also going to knock it down a bit on the grounds that it does not pass the Ift Decker test of is there a single named woman character in the movie who doesn't die? Since Isabella, I would argue, is not a named woman character in this movie. Oh, I 100% agree with you. Isabella, um, I said, I didn't realize her name was Isabella. I, I watched this a bunch as a kid and I did. I wouldn't have been able to tell you her name is Isabella until it shows up in the credits at the end because they don't mention it. It's not written down at any point. It, it's just not mentioned. So therefore, a named female character does not survive to the end of this movie. Yeah, I actually, I think, had the opposite problem with this movie that it never occurred to me that they didn't name her because I knew what her name was. Um, the other thing about that is it also points out to me that there is only one named female character in this movie. Yes, there is. His dead and wife. And it's Murren. Yes. Yeah. And she's not even given a second name. Nope. Um, it, her father is given a second name. We obviously assume it is. And at the funeral, at her funeral, they are shouting out her second name. Uh, and then it turns into Wallace. Because, of course, we need to celebrate Wallace. Obviously. But yeah, yeah so uh, one named one character and she lasts about 45 minutes into a three hour movie. And during which time she's been threatened with rape beforehand um, and basically in the scariest, creepiest way possible. And then she gets her throat slit in front of everybody. So yeah, uh, not a good job at passing the if Decker test, I have to admit. Um, now, as for my ratings, I'm going to be slightly more generous uh, than you are, Sarah. I'm going to give this a 4 out of 5. Okay. And the reason I'm going to give it a 4 out of 5 is I have the same problems that you have um, in so much as the Isabella character seems to be sidelined much and some of her motivations and some of her actions are bizarre in comparison to what would happen at the time and I'm very annoyed by the characterization of Edward II, as I said, if they wanted to just say he was a homosexual, just say he's a homosexual. Don't dance around it by using the most offensive versions of how you can code somebody as a homosexual. So that's where I'm taking my point off. I would take two points off, but I'm going to give that point back because I think Edward Longshanks is a super compelling villain. He is. He plays it and he hams it up, but everything he does makes sense every single move he makes is the kind of move you would expect a good general or a good war leader to actually make um and as i said he hams it up the problem with scotland is that it's full of scots <laughs> etc it gets pronounced he, thinks he's very funny. he does think <laughs> he's very funny um but i'm gonna give it four and then the other reason that i'm bringing back up to the four star instead of going down to the three is the action scenes in this movie are very well done they are very visceral they're very um 
kinetic as opposed to a lot of uh, fight scenes where you have battles going on which kind of get lost in the mire. Um, yes, so we follow in on what Wallace is doing and what Hamish is doing and what Steve and the Irish lad are doing. But at the same time, you still always get the sense of this is what's happening in the battle. And because of that, and because I always knew what was going on in each of the battles, I think the action scenes are very good. And I'm going to jump it up to a four out of five. All right. So an average of three and a half. An average <laughs> of three and a half, which is, that's probably about right. An average of three and a half. Yeah. Interesting. Sarah, would you like to tell people how they can get in contact with us? I would love to. So first of all, if you have been enjoying this podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcasting platform. And also, if you have any feedback for us, we encourage you to get in touch with us via email. Our email address is media.evilpod at gmail.com. That's M-E-D-I-A dot E-V-A-L at gmail.com. And uh, you can also find us on Twitter at MediaEvilPod, where I will occasionally tweet things relevant to this podcast and the Middle Ages. And I will never tweet because I do not know how. If you want to find me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me under my real name. So you can find me at Sarah Itch Decker on either of those platforms. Um, and Ali, where else can they find you on the internet? You can find me at my other podcast. I do one called Best Acquaintances with my best friend, Emily. Um, we are two people who've never met and we record interviews with people that we only know from the internet. So we basically pick one of our friends that we know from various Facebook groups. We give them a Skype call and we just talk to them about you know themselves. And it turns out that everybody is interesting. Like people say, oh, I can't talk about anything. There's nothing, there's nothing interesting about me. And then literally every single episode, you'll find at least one or two nuggets of pure gold where people are telling you stories. And it just turns out that they've, they've lived pretty much amazing lives. Every single person at some stage has done something extraordinary to the rest of us. It might feel ordinary to you, but it's extraordinary to people who aren't living through it at the time. Um, that's how myself and Sarah met. Mm -hmm. uh, hers is a very good episode. And it's uh, it's really great. I recommend it to everybody. So it's called Best Acquaintances. And you can find us in the Best Acquaintances podcast group on Facebook as well, which is just full of nice people doing nice stuff. Absolutely. It's good. Sarah, so now that we've done all that, where we talked about how you can get in contact with us, what movie shall we do next week for episode two of Media Evil? So next time, we're going to do the first of what I'm sure will be many Arthurian adaptations. And we'll be talking about the movie First Night, starring Sean Connery, Richard Gere, and Julia Ormond. Yeah, Julia Ormond, um, because I'm going to let you in a little secret, listeners. This is the second time we've talked about doing this movie. And the first time we talked about doing this movie, I couldn't remember her name. <laughs> <laughs> I kept calling her about five different people's names. <laughs> but yes, Julia Armand, who they really tried to make a thing. They did. In 1994 to 1996. Also, before I rewatched this movie, I was pretty sure Julia Roberts was in it. But no, it's Julia Armand. No. Well, you would assume with Richard Gere. But yeah. we'll talk about that on next week's podcast. Sarah, always a pleasure. You too. And we'll see you all next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.